This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome back. <laughs> yes, welcome back, hopefully. Hopefully. Okay, so Steve, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to be talking about sanctuary trauma. So this is an interesting concept that is not widely used. And it is something that does exist in the literature. It's something that I studied a bit in my research with veterans for my dissertation. But it's a very uncommonly used concept. But I think it requires some bringing back because it's quite useful and I think it needs to be revived. So let's define it. Wait, so it was popular before and then it fell out of favor? It was never really popular. It was just something that actually appeared in the literature, particularly around Vietnam veterans. And so it was developed by Dr. Stephen Silver, and he defines it as occurring when an individual experiences a severe stressor, but then next encounters what is expected to be a supportive environment, but is actually more traumatizing. And so this was pretty much applied to veterans transitioning to civilian life in the Vietnam context. And you can imagine what that would be like with kind of the hatred toward the war. Oh man, that is something I don't think I can actually fully fathom because it's like you were forced to go to a war that you don't necessarily believe in to do horrible things to people who are just defending their land and then retreating in disgrace as the military has to pull out and then you go back home and are treated even worse like that. That's way too much to take in because like, oh my God, no, that that sounds awful. Yeah, exactly. And, And so Vietnam veterans, they had a different reception, one may say, compared to World War II veterans. Oh, yeah. It was a different time and place, different war. And historically, you know, veterans would come back to like, you're the best. You saved the world from evil Nazi Hitler, whatever. This was different. And they came back to an environment feeling almost like it traumatized again by kind of the anti-war protesting, not feeling like they fit in, not feeling supported, maybe not getting the actual support they needed from the government in some ways. Just a whole bunch of combined factors. There's a term in there. I know we're talking about sanctuary trauma, but isn't there? some sort of word for secondary trauma from like the treatment or handling of trauma not necessarily like this seems like specific to coming back and expecting support but like somebody who has suffered an assault of some sort goes to the police and may not be taken seriously that not being taken seriously is in itself more traumatic or i guess dealing with the mental health it's called system can take a bit of a toll on people too so like is there not a term you're familiar with to do with that is it just secondary trauma i can't think of the word I guess a secondary trauma could be like an umbrella term where sanctuary trauma fits into as a kind of a a subcategory of it perhaps. Yeah, that's what I mean. But I just was wondering if there was an actual term. Is it secondary trauma or is there another that you've heard of? I think that's the main one that I've heard of. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the definition specifically of that one right now. Again, trusty Wikipedia. Secondary trauma can be incurred when an individual is exposed to people who have been traumatized themselves. Disturbing descriptions of traumatic events by a survivor or others inflicting cruelty on one another. Symptoms of secondary 
secondary trauma are similar to those of PTSD. So yeah, it's coming back and then kind of being really, it's being triggered and then experiencing the trauma again. Uh, okay. It sounded like it was traumatizing people through exposing them to the story of your trauma or traumatizing people through the, your trauma response to things that have triggered you kind of thing. Oh no, it's when you re-experience. Okay. Yeah, I guess then that is what it is, right? Sanctuary trauma would be under that umbrella, you think? Right. Yeah, it's under the umbrella and it doesn't happen, I guess, because of an individual experiencing another individual talking about their trauma and it triggering it necessarily. It's kind of a cultural concept. So sanctuary trauma, by definition is related to institutions and cultures within those institutions. So the word sanctuary implies there's supposed to be safety in this place, in this system, whether the system is a family system, a societal system, like veterans coming into a society where they expect it to be safe and being taken care of in that society. A religious system. Religious system or a psychiatric institution or healthcare system, social services. So this is very much a, what is it called? Is it systemic critique? No, it's one of those very social logical things, right? It's like looking at organizations. What is this a systemic criticism? What do you call this? It's criticizing systems for I guess re-traumatizing individuals really is what it's doing. And particularly those systems that are kind of well-intentioned, trying to help, that are supposed to be the help. So it's not just like, you know, criticizing all systems that are re-traumatizing someone. It's specifically those ones where there's an optimism regarding and you expect that there's going to be support there, but then you get the opposite of that. So we were just talking earlier today very briefly about, do you remember what that book was called? Something Optimism, Cruel Optimism. Do you think it's kind of related to that? Because it is is like desiring this thing that ultimately is bad for you, right? But I mean, you can't knowingly do that. Cause like the examples given that I saw were like wanting to be cool and fit in and smoking, which then ends up like limiting who you can connect with because maybe it ostracizes you from like more polite society or something. So I don't know, maybe I'm way off base. Let's get back on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to delve more into cruel optimism in, a, in another episode. But I, I'm curious if it is related or not, because we haven't done a lot of research around that. But back to, I guess, sanctuary trauma. What is sanctuary? Like when you hear the words sanctuary, what comes to mind? I guess usually, well, the first thing that comes to mind is <laughs> Hunchback of Notre Dame, where I think they were talking about like giving sanctuary in the church or at, somebody is asking for sanctuary in the church, but it's like being able to be somewhere and be protected from some likely danger, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the etymology of that word is exactly that. It's rooted in, I guess, the word even sacred. So the word sacred and sanctuary are kind of tied together. It was often used to refer to religious places, consecrated places, special places, safe places, holy and places. And sociologically, the sacred, according to Emil Durkheim, is actually something that is meant to bind us together in societies. So religions functioned to give us social integration and bonding. So we'd have a sacred object or symbol that we would all rally around, whether it's a flag or religious symbol like the cross. And it's a thing that binds us together. And according to Jonathan Haidt, religion binds and it blinds in, in some ways. So it binds us together, but it also can cut us off from people in other ways. So this, this sanctuary or the sacred place that we expect to receive support from, you know, support is this bonding, this presence with others, non-judgmental, this compassion that we expect. Things go really the other direction. And the, kind of that 
sacred expectation or bond is broken. And this very much relates to veterans because when they were serving in Afghanistan, the government often used, or actually when they were transitioning back, the government often used the word sacred obligation. We have a sacred obligation to our veterans. Oh, wow. Did they actually? Because that just seems like they're so full of shit from what I've heard about how they treat their <laughs> veterans. Like, are yeah. you serious? That just seems so, oh my God, really? So this is when I was actually studying the veterans in transition to civilian life. During the, that research, the liberal government actually put out a video. Wait, Canadian or American? Canadian. Oh, okay. The Canadian Liberal Party put out a video describing our sacred obligation to our veterans and using the language of the sacred. And veterans, this didn't go unnoticed. You know, this word, <laughs> they were like, sacred? Well, like, look what's going on here. You know, we're really struggling. And they really felt abandoned because that word was invoked. And when you sign up for the military, you're not signing up for your average job contract. You know, there is a contract, of course, and there's a bureaucracy, but it's a little bit more than that because in a normal job, there's a certain level of liability, which it's limited to. Your employer can't send you off into a situation that's going to kill you. That you feel unsafe in, yeah. Your employer can't even send you off to a situation where you're going to burn your finger, let alone kill you, you know? Well, I mean, cooks and stuff do exist, but I mean, they, if you feel unsafe doing it, you can have the right to refuse, in Canada at least. Right. There's a certain limit to that liability, and there's this thing called unlimited liability in the military. And so they say it's covenants, not contracts that they want. Contracts are this bureaucratic kind of assuming there's a limitation to that liability but having put their lives on the very line covenant very religious language again going to that sacred that religious language so they're saying well if you're going to stand behind what you're saying is a sacred obligation then we want kind of that treatment in turn so that was kind of the core of this article that I wrote on sanctuary trauma back in the day there i think around 2013 <laughs> back in the day decade ago. Back in the old days, what are your thoughts? About the whole thing? I don't know. I guess one is that I obviously earlier confused with everybody talking about the American or Canadian military. So I don't have as strong of a criticism against the Canadian military. So I'm not actually as familiar with how we treat our vets, which typical Canadian thing, honestly, because <laughs> we know more about American politics than our own at times, frequently even. I guess I don't have anything to say. I mean, I could talk spout off on the military, but I don't know enough. So I'd probably just end up offending people. So I'm not going to do that. I think the angle that I would want to talk about is within relationships because when we were talking about this off air leading up I thought it was more to do with just seeking support for something that you need support for and being rebuffed rejected judged a second wave of trauma I thought it was more like that not necessarily requiring like huge trauma beforehand but just seeking support so I was thinking of even milder forms like I've had a really shitty day and you go home and talk to your spouse about it and they say you know what I've had a worse day shut the hell up get away from me blah blah and you just feel like even more dejected and all Alone. So that's a much, much milder form of what you're describing. What do you think about this interpretation? I think it's accurate. Death by a thousand paper cuts, as, as they can say. The word microaggression kind of rings a bell here. And it's a smaller individual version of this thing that I'm describing. The thing that I'm describing is kind of necessarily systemic, but systems are made up by individuals. So, for example, family systems can create this form of trauma. For example, if you're in a family system that doesn't talk about negative things or emotions and you're a part of this family and you are, let's say, experiencing a traumatic event, fill in the blank, whatever it is outside of the family and you come back to that family, maybe not expecting it, but you don't know where else to go. So you open up to the family. You take a risk. You take a risk. And then they say, oh, you're making a big deal. Stop talking about that. You're back just Back in my day, we had it much worse. Don't you know 
know what they said to us back then, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's like, okay, your suffering is irrelevant because mine was worse. So in these Olympic games of suffering, I am the more... (laughs) The more, I don't know, virtuous, is this getting close to resentment with like slave ethics of being more moral for having suffered? Do you think it's related to that? Could be. Yeah, it could be for sure. For sure. You should be getting support. You know, the word family, there's this kind of sacredness supposed to be surrounding the family in an ideal way, which doesn't actually happen in practice often. A lot of people find family to be more trying and just difficult than any other relationships in their life. As they say, we have phrases around that, like blood is thicker than water for a reason. And also you can't pick your family, (laughs) like that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I think this is probably fairly common, which is why I was thinking about family in that way. Yeah. And so you go open up and like, this happened to me and like, oh, don't talk about that. You're just causing trouble. So you stop talking about it. But then it comes up in little ways where you're emotionally triggered by something and then you have to either isolate or people look at you like, oh, why are you acting out so weird? And then it's this kind of prolonged system of rebuffing. (laughs) Yeah, because you're like a ping pong ball being bounced back and forth between people and emotional states. Right, yeah. So the example you described on the individual level, you can easily extrapolate that to a family system and how that can be produced and we can look at it really as sanctuary trauma as well. Yeah, and I guess the question I still have lingering is, do you think, like you're using the word trauma, which is a very specific thing, so do you think it must be a traumatic event or can it be something smaller? Like, I mean, it depends on, like, how are we defining trauma? Is it the person's response to the thing? Is it the actual event itself? Because, like, getting fired could be traumatic for some people, but other people might be unfazed by it or even happy. So how are we defining trauma here? Do you think it's a required element before the sanctuary trauma? Yeah, that's a tricky word to pin down sometimes because when you think of the word, it reminds you of, like, natural disasters, war, significant, like, assaults, these types of things. But traumas don't necessarily have to come in those forms. They can simply be overwhelming emotional experiences and even prolonged experiences in the case of complex trauma. They say it's an accumulation of events over for a significant period of time. Complex PTSD. Yeah, and so the sanctuary model actually has a definition of trauma. So in response to this concept of sanctuary trauma, Dr. Sandra Bloom created what's called the sanctuary model. And it's actually a model as a proposed healing mechanism, an institutional kind of reform that's required to prevent the risk of sanctuary trauma actually happening. And the model identifies the experience (laughs) of trauma. What's that? I can't help but laugh just because it's like, okay, so... it just seems like the people who would be interested in learning about this would already be the ones that are less likely to have caused the trauma because they actually care to not cause trauma. And the people that are causing sanctuary trauma are going to be most likely the ones that will think, ah, oh, screw your feelings, blah, blah, blah. Like the world's tough, blah, blah, blah. So like they're not going to be open to these things. It just, it seems, I don't know, like they are helping the people who are already going to be least likely to cause the, the damage. Right. On an individual level. Yeah. Like organizational though. I mean, oh, you're talking about the model. Yeah. The model's talking about organizational change. And so it's it's really creating a culture that's trauma-informed. So if people originally in that culture and the organization have this like tough love approach that they engage in psychoeducation, community meetings and dialogue, retraining. What I said even applies sort of to organizational stuff too, because if the culture in the organization is already toxic enough and bad enough to have this in there, who's going to be installing this better <laughs> software to get them to operate well? Like the HR department's suddenly going to be telling the CEO what to do? And this is the thing. Yeah, it's true. It's going to be biasing towards favorable organizations implementing this for sure. 
So optimization, it's still not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's overall bad. It just seems like it's going to be an optimization thing more than it is going to be a reversal of direction. Right, right. Yeah, they're in it for the long haul, and they realize that it's not going to change everyone overnight. And maybe the toxic culture gets a new person in leadership that can kind of steering the ship in a different direction slowly. And I suppose also as they become more and more popular among better companies, employees might expect better behavior and be more familiar with the model. So it could be like memes, like going back to that episode, it could start spreading and dominating. Right. Yeah. And so to the definition of trauma here, this is from the Sanctuary Models website, the sanctuaryinstitute.org. It says the Sanctuary Model identifies the experience of trauma along a wide continuum that includes both discrete events and ongoing, cumulative and perhaps intangible experiences like racism and poverty. Trauma is defined as an experience in which a person's internal resources are not adequate to cope with the external stressors. Trauma theory suggests that many of the individual's symptoms that we see in individuals are a direct result of coping with adverse experiences. What we identify as maladaptive behaviors are really misapplied survival skills. So this is actually very much similar to internal family systems, right? Yes, very much. <laughs> which we have not done... We have we done an episode on I'm getting lost of what we talked about it enough no, we times. Have, we have not. Okay, so then sometime soon we're probably gonna end up having to do that. But yeah, so do you want to like give a brief touch on how it's connected to IFS? Yeah. I mean internal family systems, it looks at it from the same perspective. Rather than using the word maladaptive behaviors or personality disorders, it has a little bit more of a compassionate language and says that people are doing the best they can with what they've got and with their particular histories. And something that looks looks like bad behavior is actually a learned behavior from childhood to cope with a particular adverse event or family system that they were in. And so fundamentally, it's asking not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. This is the core of trauma-informed practice, is when you see something that stands out, like, oh, wow, that was a weird, why did they do that? You know, rather than going to the thought that maladaptive, they're bad, or, or some other kind of judgment. And I mean, it is kind of maladaptive in some ways if you're kind of flipping out on people. But I guess the language matters too. So it's not asking what's wrong with you. It's asking, wow, what happened to you in the past? But I mean, even the thing about maladaptive is like, it's maladaptive for what? right? Like maladaptive for which situation? Throwing punches is generally maladaptive unless you're a boxer. So like context matters a lot. Of course. And so we're talking about like throwing a punch to a colleague at work who also throws punches for a living. <laughs> <laughs> you are bad. Yes. We're talking about boxers. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, obviously we're talking about trauma, so I probably shouldn't make light of it. <laughs> I'm not making light of trauma. It's just I'm I don't know. Maybe like leavening the mood might be a good thing for the audience. I don't I don't know. But the content we're talking about is not a laughing matter, nor are these responses or anything. But like I don't know. <laughs> I'm just making a stupid joke here to lighten the mood. So if someone's flipping out and it's a situation that it doesn't make sense. Like someone on the bus or public transit and they're flipping out and you're looking at it like... Or how about even just like talking to a relative or a friend about something that is unknowingly you're touching a nerve and they just cease to make sense. I remember in university, looking back now that I think of it in this very moment, a bunch of people that I would have ended up arguing with might just be having sort of trauma responses. Or if you look at the way people talk about politics, it seems very related to that as well, that they are spouting off and they just cease to make sense because it's touching something that they don't want prodded. Yeah, I take a trauma-informed lens when talking about politics. 
politics even because you might not see the connection here. But when you're talking or listening to someone talk about politics, it's usually how it goes. And they're really getting passionate and you get some resentment coming up or resentment. When you start to feel that vibe coming out, my mind immediately goes to a trauma-informed, what's going on in that person's life or what happened to them historically that's creating this reaction right now? That's where my mind goes instantly. Is it probably a good place? Because like, I usually find that I'm a little bit slower than that. Like, They start doing stuff and I'm like trying to not capsize, I guess, the boat. And so I'm just like trying to do corrective maneuvers instead of being like, wait, so, oh, this is what's happening. It's more, I'm just like, oh, whoa, like what's, what's happening right now? And then after a bit, I'm like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, now I see it. <laughs> But I guess you're more primed by your actual job. I'm just a layperson <laughs> dealing with somebody flipping out at me like for whatever reason. Yeah. And when flipping out is happening, been kind of trained to immediately switch to where's this coming from? This person's not in a good place. What has happened to them? What's going on in their life? And that allows me to have compassion and therefore listen non-judgmentally, protect my own energy because <laughs> I don't want to get hooked in to a flame battle, protects my own energy. It allows me to have boundaries if it's more personal. I can say, hmm, well, that's interesting. I'll have to look into that a little bit more. Also, I feel like gray rocking, in personal lives at least, gray rocking might actually help a bit here because oftentimes people in that state are like in a combative mode. They're responding to some sort of trauma in the past that was combative. And so if they have nobody to push up against or you're like verbal judo, you're just kind of sidestepping their assaults and asking them questions about it and trying to understand, this can just take away a lot of the steam from it too. And for those who are not familiar, gray rocking is a technique used to cope with narcissistic relationships or any kind of unhealthy relationship where somebody is trying to hook you in to some kind of battle. And it's a way to protect yourself by just being really boring, like a gray rock. And so if they're trying to get you in some political flame battle, you're like, hmm, interesting. Okay, I'll have to consider, i have to look into it. All right, well, I got to get over here, so we'll talk a bit, take care. You know, so it'd be very flat, very boring. Very polite. Yeah, you're, there's no reason for them to attack you. And even if they do start attacking you, you just keep being like, oh, that's an interesting observation. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a way to protect yourself. And that can come from a trauma-informed lens because you can be doing it from a personal boundaries lens where you're like, I don't have time for this. I need to go. But you can also add the layer of trauma-informed lens, which makes it easier to do that because and be like, oh, this doesn't have to do with me. This is not a person attacking me and my values and my opinions. This is a person who's trying to make sense of something in their world, create order, and maybe they're not in a good place. So it makes it less personal. Yeah. I feel like hearing that now, it makes a lot more sense. So it's like, I'm just kind of meta feeling about hearing this because I just kind of talk is a lot like hurt people, hurt people and talking about more enlightened characters and shows talking about how somebody's just dealing with pain kind of thing. And I guess it feels like it strikes at a deeper level hearing it now after many more years of reading more psych stuff and counseling stuff and interacting with people. So just I'm having like a Plato's allegory of the cave kind of experience right now. It's like this is actually very profound, but depending on when you hear it and what state you hear it, this may sound like trite, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, like damaged people will do things to people that is bad. But like, again, this kind of all goes back to compassion for the self and for others is the only solution because like keeping a boundary with people, gray rocking when you need to, when they're just looking for somebody to push up against it's nothing to do with you they're just somebody that's on fire trying to look for somebody to hug and smother it against or catch on fire with them that's where you have to just protect yourself in gray rock but then also extending compassion like not thinking they're a terrible person like for instance i've been telling you about how i've been reading the book musashi lately which is apparently japan's gone with the wind as it's compared to and it's got a character who's been very vindictive and petty and one of the main antagonists of the, the novel but 
as with a lot of Japanese media I've watched, they constantly keep compassion, the main characters do at least, for these characters and these bad, not bad, but contemptible and very vindictive characters, eventually often wearing them down and bringing them over to their side and making an ally from an enemy. Like even Dragon Ball Z is a huge example. Goku befriends a lot of his former rivals and like Vegeta is a huge one. He has super nerd references, but if anybody gets it, that's a very famous Japanese example of it. I don't get it, but yes. <laughs> Basically, I'm saying that a lot of this, by recognizing their pain and trauma and all this stuff, that is a compassionate stance. You're not saying there goes a bad person, a broken, irreparable person that must be condemned and killed. We're saying these people have issues that needs to be talked about and addressed and without compassion, that will never happen and they will continue to be a spiteful asshole. There you go. So you had a little bit of a revelation. I'm curious if there was like flashing scenarios going before your mind and some <laughs> revelation. No, I think like one of the concepts I wanted to do was on fractals because it's a mathematical concept of things like infinitely regressing and looking self-similar the whole way. Like no matter where you look at it, what scale, it'll always look the same or represent itself. I feel like a lot of truths kind of feel like that when I have this kind of moment where things come together and click. Like it's just a sense that like, oh shit, it all kind of fits together and like it feels very complete and whole in a way. And that's just the feeling I got <laughs> listening to this thing I've heard a thousand times before. And then only now did it hit me on that particular level. You know, this is actually part of the sanctuary model. It's part of the actual theoretical <laughs> part of it. I honestly didn't know. <laughs> they call it parallel process. Okay. And it's actually talking about how institutions are susceptible in the same way that individuals are. So it says here, just as we see individuals who have experienced trauma responding with isolative behavior and withdrawal from the community, we also see organizations facing financial or political stressors respond with isolationism, rigidity, and hierarchical decision-making. Intervening in this parallel process requires shifting behaviors and thinking to align with a specific set of values. So again, this is the values orientation. What really matters here is part of how to move forward. Values can bind us together. But just like individuals may face adversity with chaos or rigidity on a psychological level, chaos being like psychosis, rigidity being more on the side of neurosis, and then also in their interpersonal relationships being too rigidly controlling or too kind of chaotic. Institutions also on this kind of fractal thing you're talking about also can react to stressors by going chaotic or rigid. Yeah, I think you were talking about that with, because we, we've remember we talked about on air, we've talked about so many times with each other about how individuals who don't have their entire mindset or their personality, pieces of themselves that are ostracized that they don't like, that they don't want to deal with, end up responding to that chaos of like disorder in their mind with rigidity and inflexibility, psychologically speaking. Yeah. And so it's a misapplication of survival skills. Just like individuals are misapplying survival skills, if they're facing a traumatic event, fight or flight makes sense. It's a survival skill. If something is triggering the traumatic event, but it's not actually harmful in that situation and they're using a survival skill to misapplication of it. So the organization, let's say, is trying to survive because it's facing some kind of adversity. Let's say the healthcare system is being underfunded. Yeah, it's starved, held underwater and then a political campaign talking about how it's always going to be like that because the government can't do it right, blah, 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 but it was fine for a long time when funded. We're talking about the Canadian context here. Yeah, in general though, but like it seems like everywhere I go, like actually Brazil has a better healthcare system than Canada. We're really off on a tangent, I recognize, but it's 
it's free for here. Like they were, they were shocked that I had to pay for any vaccines that were for the travel, for the trips to come here. They don't have to pay for any, even like I can go myself as a foreigner. I can go to get free vaccines. Apparently they've told me, or at least reimbursable ones. So it's like, I might just <laughs> start collecting the ones that are like, you're immune for life. Like I might as well get some of those. Yeah, pick some up. Why not? But in Canada, basically, and this is the kind of the one, two shuffle of conservative steps is that we're going to underfund this thing and then say that it never works because it's the government. But the thing that's making it not work are the people that says it never works and this because they're the ones breaking it. Like you're taking a hammer to a car and saying, look, cars don't work. They don't last very long. And you just keep hammering away. It's like, no shit. Like you have to actually give it the things it needs. <laughs> yes. So if we look at the healthcare system as like a living, breathing organism, like a human being, and it's being undernourished, it's going to react with some fight or flight. And so there's institutional procedures that develop that become more rigid, more coercive, less humane, because we're too stretched thin. We can't talk to people. We just have to give them the medication and leave them alone. You know, and so you can start to see these kind of trauma responses. And this also goes like practical again to the societal level where if you think about it right now, like our modern society, like people are too harried, stretched too thin, as you said, with all the things that they've got going on. Work keeps overextending itself as to what it demands. That's why the whole quiet quitting thing I think is bullshit. We haven't talked about it yet, but quiet quitting to me is just like white collar corporate propaganda where it's like just doing your job is suddenly not doing your job. If you wanted me to do it, then pay me for it and put it in my job description. What are we doing? Is this a guessing game? Am I supposed to guess what I'm supposed to do at work? How do I get on that? What were we talking about? (laughs) We're talking about the various levels at which when something is malnourished it reacts with chaos in rigidity. And so like it leads us to what we almost talked about today, NME, because like that's a sick society, right? Yes, exactly. And it's caused by people all lashing out at each other because the system's broken. There's too much disparity between wealth and incomes and the security of the country and the future of the average person is in jeopardy. So we're constantly lashing out, causing further decline because we're not getting together with people. It's kind of like, again, also hearkening back to decadence, which I still am thinking through some of the arguments there because I still don't like them. And it's coming up actually in a bunch of different places and like leftist YouTube. <laughs> that particular Sir John Glubb PDF that we talked about in that episode. Right. Right. So much of this does relate to that topic of decadence. And related to that concept of decadence, I, you, you often hear people these days say, nobody wants to work anymore. Oh my God. Yeah. And now I just reconciled this today. It's a phrase that became popular amidst record low unemployment numbers. So the problem is not nobody wants to work. Everyone is working. <laughs> okay, well, then that means there's not enough supply of people in the job market, that there is too few workers, that they actually have a buyer's market. And I think the companies often don't want to, or I guess the seller's market in terms of labor, the companies don't want to raise their wages. And so they complain like this and shame people to not have to raise their wages when it's like wages have stayed relatively frozen for the past like almost 30 years now. Like, what do they expect? Inflation hasn't ceased. And okay, if we think about businesses in terms of like materials required, all materials costs have gone up. They'll complain about that and say, therefore, labor shouldn't be paid more. Labor is also a material that is needed to make the actual stuff happen. So why would that not also go up? Everything has just gone up, including what it costs to live. So then why would this not also be an issue? Cost of labor. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, that's just one of the major components that adds value to these things. But there's always the argument that like, if you try to ask for too much, they'll automate. And it's like, if they could do that, they would have done that. 
back to something I was thinking about earlier, just recently, was what I just did a minute ago before the rant was kind of connect various concepts we've already talked about and interwoven them, right? And that, I think, will continue to happen more and more, especially if we keep in similar areas. But even if we don't, this is what I was talking about long ago with nomological networks, I think it was, or like your mental network of ideas. Because the more of these things that are fairly strongly supported, at least, or with reality and scientifically supported, the more you'll have this network of things that make sense. And as you end up trying to put another piece in there, if it doesn't fit or it clashes with a number of these things that are more well-founded, then we can say, okay, that's bullshit. And that's kind of what, again, the purpose of the podcast is to like be able to see, oh, these things all connect. So when bad ideas come along, hopefully you'll have the critical thinking. I guess that's literally what it is to see that it's bullshit. Right. Can you reconcile that statement though? That nobody wants to work, but there's record low unemployment. Like those two things don't fit together very well. No, they do. I mean, from an economics perspective, and I'm not an economist, but I just have dabbled with it. It would imply, I think, that there are too many jobs and not enough people. What does that imply? Well, I don't know. Mass death might have been a thing, but the total number of deaths in the U.S. aren't so high that it would vacate a number of jobs. I mean, it, I mean, it will vacate um, like at least a million because I think that's where the death toll is recently sitting around. But that's still one thirty-fifth of the. I mean, one thirty-fifth is pretty sizable of a population, but a lot of them were retirees. I don't know. Maybe Oh, oh, there's one. A lot of people retired during the pandemic because there was just a community time and then now they're two years or three years older than men. So they're not going to just be like, I'm going to get back into the workforce unless they really have to. So there's that. So I guess there's just too many jobs. People are kind of reevaluating their value in the workforce. And so the idea that nobody wants to work, maybe it's a corrective function of people taking different positions. It is. I mean, also look at the unionization effort. Like things in society and history are, they move like a pendulum. I call it like a pendulum on like a mine car because it's like on wheels, swings forward, goes a bit, and then slows down, backs up a bit, but then continues ultimately moving forward. Generally speaking, that's not a guarantee as we've seen in recent years, but it does seem to be that we're in a corrective phase now after having too much capitalism and too much power for corporations. People are now taking the power back to individuals, going to unionization. Like you see the corporations running scared lately. I think Starbucks is one of them. They keep saying like, if you don't unionize, we'll give you X. Like I think it was like maternal care or student loans. And it's like, yeah, but if we do unionize, we can force you to give us X and more. So shove it. Yeah. We've gotten a little away from sanctuary trauma, but I think it's relevant because it's a social (laughs) concept that talks about the health of an institution. But I mean, hold on though. Like it is somewhat related because if you think about it like it's the institution of work right like if you work a full-time job in a society you should be able to live and save and like move forward in life not just be like starvation level living off the dole where the people that say like just work harder don't want to pay more but also kind of want to get rid of the dole like anything the government is going to fund because it's a waste it just the whole thing is like a one-two punch on the right wing these days yeah i can see how we're extrapolating it to these broader systems and i wanted to bring it back to the healthcare system in particular (laughs) all right sure fine healthcare because it's a big system we're talking about Canadian healthcare or just like healthcare in general? Probably in general, but I'm going to speak from actually my Canadian experience because I've worked in healthcare. I've worked in systems that I guess felt under supported, some that felt properly supported, but more often people were stretched thin in a way that leads to chaos and rigidity as an attempt to cope. And so in addiction treatment, this sanctuary model is completely relevant. In psychiatric treatment, this model they're trying to push for that in psychiatric treatment, because people are very often experiencing trauma in these environments, residential rehab or psychiatric treatment facilities. Sanctuary trauma is huge in this type of spot. And there's actually a study called Trauma Within the Psychiatric Setting. And they did a survey and found that 86% of respondents reported experiencing institutional events and procedures, such as being handcuffed, 
put in restraints, being placed in seclusion, these types of coercive measures. 43.9% experienced sexual or physical assault. 38.6% experienced coercive measures. They have definitions in there as well. In general, I don't know anybody who's been in the healthcare system as a patient, the mental healthcare system here, and not been re-traumatized by the experience of that. Yes, very much. Like psychiatric nurses saying some of the worst shit I've ever heard. Like you're just a diagnosis and that's all you'll ever be. A psychiatric nurse said this. It's horrible, the stuff that goes on in these places. I hear it all the time. All that I see it, I hear it in my work all the time. And so the survey, it's like shocking these numbers, but I'm like, well, it makes sense because I'm hearing it. It's terrible. More numbers. 26.3% witness traumatic events and 22.8% experience verbal intimidation or abuse. So in a place that's supposed to be a sanctuary of healing, the psychiatric facilities are often quite the opposite. Yeah. And I mean, same with like police too, especially their reputation these days. I think there are personality types that are attracted to it. Like one of them would be those that are drawn to justice and wanting to uphold the system. Lawful good people, they are probably outnumbered at this point, it seems, based on at least how the system's working. I don't know. But that's another system where people think, like the whole thing on the many police uniforms is like to protect and serve. But then the question is now becoming more, I guess, the protect and serve who? Because <laughs> like, is it to protect and serve the population and like to keep peace and order? But then the question is who's peace and order and what do we define as violence? Because like we haven't talked about on air, but we've talked off air about how people that want change, aka people on the left, because that's kind of how I define it and how it seems to be defined, they are suffering violence of different sorts. It's not like they're being literally hit over the head, but they could have, say, certain zoning laws for living or some women now in the US can't get abortion rights, like reproductive rights stuff. That's a form of violence against them from the state. So then they may cause what we it's perceived to be unrest or possible physical violence of like destruction of property, not necessarily assaulting people. But then we would say that's bad and have the police go in and shut that down. So who are they protecting and serving in that context? The people that need more rights and have them had the, the violence of them taken away or the ones that just want things to stay the same because the system works for them. And that's that. So like some people have argued that the police inherently have always been a slave of capital or those of in power. They've never been for the people. And that's generally true if we look at actually the system and the history of them, at least as far as I'm aware, but I'm going to stop spreading off outside of my expertise. All right. Well, if we can connect the police to the psychiatric system, there's a connection there. Because when you call for a wellness check, if somebody's a harm to themselves or others, you just call 911, give them the information, tell them the address where the person's at, something I have to do in my work. And the police go with them? Yeah, the police will, will show up, do an assessment. If they are harmed to themselves or others, then they will take them to be admitted in the psychiatric hospital. It's very rare, and I try not to have to do this at all costs, because because it's useful to keep the person alive, you know, in some way that that's useful. Doing this is useful to keep to keep them alive, but it's not therapeutic. No, it's probably more tra- yeah, it's traumatic. <laughs> the word wellness check is let's say a euphemism, <laughs> and it might be if you get by random chance a really good officer, which does happen. They do exist. Yeah, they do exist. And Canada actually has a reputation for having better ones overall, but I don't know any real research on that. And you could you hit the lottery, and then you connect with the right officer, and then you connect with the right psychiatric nurse and the right psychiatrist and then all of a sudden you're on the road to recovery but that's a real gamble i'm usually going to assume (laughs) 
that it's going to lead to further harms in some way, but the person's going to be alive and maybe it'll buy enough time for them to get some other treatment. So that's kind of the connection between the police and the healthcare system, I guess you can say. Yeah. I mean, also the way I was connecting it was that they're both institutions that are supposed to help the people that in the society in which they're taking place and they don't, or they end up doing things that like gaslight people. I mean, like, did that really happen? Like, tell us more. Like, they, sometimes they are supportive and I'm sure probably more often than not, maybe they are. I don't know. But there's enough stories of like, necessarily say that. I don't know the stats, so I, I don't want to like necessarily malign the entire police force, but I'm, I'm sure I'm sure both exist in what proportion. I don't know. It seems based on the media these days that things are being handled badly by the police, but that could be very cherry-picked specific and could be even propaganda against them. But I'm not going to take the police side either because like we've also talked about how I think the police shouldn't be able to unionize because as an arm of the state, they shouldn't be able to then leverage the state to give them more money and like more power and more whatever they need. So I mean, what I might say that for is because I'm like, I'm not a shell for the police. It's just I also don't want to disparage every police officer as being bad. Yeah. And so we can look at this from a, I guess, trauma-informed and sociological perspective to have compassion for individual police officers and psychiatric nurses. But not necessarily the system? They are part of a system that's not designed for success in many ways due to either underfunding, undertraining, lack of support, whatever else. I don't think that's the same case for police and for hospital. The hospital, yes, I can agree with that. The police, I think, are often overfunded or at least funded to the places that don't need as much support and like underfunded in places like de-escalation and maybe actually knowing the law, these areas at times. That's it. So the underfunding can be best applied to the healthcare system the under training and mental health and trauma-informed de-escalation might be more relevant to the police side. But either way, we're not demonizing individuals. We're not saying, what's wrong with you, police officer? We're saying, what happened to create a situation whereby you have to react this way, where you don't feel confident enough to de-escalate a situation? I guess what as a counselor, you can't exactly condemn anybody. But like the question I have is like, when somebody has power and they're doing... Like, I've come across this with psych students. I've told you this before. Like psych grads, they're like, this person... like. This person is hugely abusive. They're verbally and physically abusive, maybe even sexually, but I'm not perfect. And they have a reason that they're like this. And so I'm just like, okay, my response is typically, I guess, in my head, at least that it's not your fault that these things happen to you, but it is your responsibility to deal with it and not pass it on to other people. So then when we find these people who are positions of power, sure, we can give them empathy and everything. But if they're in a position of power, especially over you, and they're not even accessing or looking at their traumas to stop being terrible, like what then? Yeah, everyone has a reason. Like Hitler had a reason why he was the way he was, and you can that like he read found it. compelling. Yeah, not right. a good reason necessarily. You can read his whole memoir and, and you can make sense of it, but a reason doesn't actually justify the action, and it doesn't justify you not protecting yourself or shedding responsibility from doing something about it. Both can exist at the same time. Where yes, there's a reason why this person is sadistic, but you need to protect yourself, and that's not and that's not okay. It doesn't justify it at all. Yeah, there's a reason why that dog bites everybody, but that doesn't mean and you should hang around near that dog if you can avoid it. And if you have to be around that dog, then you might have to fight, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that metaphor extends to, I don't condone anything illegal, but sometimes you got to bend the law a little bit and protest. <laughs> <laughs> Because the system's not going to fix itself. So I don't know. What are, what are our takeaways here? I mean, we're talking about a systemic thing. I guess be aware that systems can let you down. Like, I don't know. What it, <laughs> where are we going with this? We don't want to bring it into cynicism. Like, we don't want you to just, I have no faith in our institutions. They're going to re-traumatize everyone. It's all bad. I'm going to take that out of context. <laughs> 
I don't want to lose faith in our core institutions. We just want to look at them with a critical lens. Hold on, though. Actually, now I have one. We can use that compassion for the institution say, why are you like this? Why are you, institution, acting so terribly? So the healthcare in Canada, the one we're talking about, why are you like this? It's because it's not being funded. It's being starved. It's a starving person that's unable to lift weights still. So like we can figure that out, give it compassion instead of being like, I mean, even corporations like gas, we're like, well, maybe not them. <laughs> so giving a corporation money is giving it exactly what it wants and what it needs to continue being bad or to at least continue being self-destructive some maybe perhaps if it's behaving badly so i was thinking like is that comparable to like a gambling addict asking you for more money and you just keep giving them money like if you know that maybe they're selling you something you actually want but you know they're just gambling it all away like is it nah i don't think it pans out <laughs> i don't think the metaphor fits oh, try. Well. it's okay i tried yeah i can have compassion for that I guess we have to look at the core of these things instead of just demonizing them. The healthcare system sucks. It should never exist. Or like the public healthcare system is bad because it doesn't do the things we want. We have to look at how and why is it not living up to its potential and how can we address that instead of just saying it's shit. It should always be torn down. The government shouldn't do anything. Like instead of saying that, we should say, why did this fail and how can we fix it instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Yep. Having the same compassion for institutions as we do for individuals. I mean, as society maybe don't, but as this model is, is suggesting, the logic of applies for individuals, family systems, institutions, societies, global systems, international relations. It's fractal. Yeah, it's quite an interesting model to think through these things. And how do we can prevent sanctuary trauma, just to tie it all back, I guess. I don't know, fix our institutions. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm, that's the question, yes. Yeah, I guess collective action, messaging your representatives, getting together, making groups towards these things. The problem, though, is with all that, once you get down further in the line, if you start really challenging certain interest groups, then you might find yourself on the wrong end of the law, but trying to change it. So I don't know, but these things need to be addressed regardless. So you got to do what you got to do, peaceably as possible, but as effectively as possible. Wouldn't it be nice if our whole country was a sanctuary? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It depends. I'd have to think it through. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we just know that you'll be safe all the time. <laughs> I mean, this is we're going to be something we're going to talk about in the previous episode because this is coming out after Zoe B comes on. But we're going to be talking about pain and its purpose, <laughs> according to the left and the right. So tune in, aka listen to the last week's episode because it will have come out before this airs. Yep, tune in. And if you like kind of the topics we're talking about, there's a lot of other episodes on this theme that we've went over here. Yeah. Not sanctuary trauma specifically, but like the societal critique elements, I guess you can say. Yeah, it's a running theme throughout it, as well as the psychological side of it, of course. But thanks for tuning in. Share with your friends. Leave us a review and comments, ideally, anywhere that allows you to do that, because it really helps us out and it costs you a minute. So thank you for doing that if you can. And we'll hope to see you next time. Bye. I have no faith in our institutions. They're going to re-traumatize everyone. It's all bad.